episode three of the Hopeless Wonder podcast with me, Adam Gipkin. In this episode, I interviewed Craig Rogers. Craig works for a major distribution company and is a massive Rangers fan. I first started off by asking Craig how his love for Rangers first came about. Uh, well, it all started with my dad, as it does with a lot of young boys. Um, I actually grew up in a little town called Linwood, outside of Glasgow. So my local team is actually St Mirren. Um, okay. Believe it or not, thankfully, my dad's family all came from Durban, <laughs> where, okay. where Ibrox Park is, and, and I got it through him. Um, and I remember sort of watching my dad watch football um, when I was younger until I sort of turned eight or nine years old and started getting to myself and asking to go to games. And, uh, and that's how it really started from there. Nice. And uh, can you recall your first ever Rangers match? My first ever was, I believe, 1999-2000 season, so I'd have been nine years old. Um, and it was after sort of Dick Advocat's first season where he just absolutely kind of run a mock in Scotland and were about 15, 16 points clear and things were going well. And I thought, this, this sounds quite fun. Um, I'll, I'll get involved in that. And we, we played Hibs. At Ibrox, um, my dad took me along. We won five two. Fantastic game. I can't remember a lot of the details, obviously, but I do remember George Albert scored. Um, I think he scored twice. Actually, he scored a penalty, and Barry Ferguson scored as well. So, from a first Rangers game, it was actually quite a good, quite a good game to go to. And what was the team like at the time? Because um, I remember a lot of the Rangers players, but I can't necessarily put my finger on a lot of the team. So, can you just remind the listeners what that team was made of? So that that was kind of it's fondly remembered as one of the, the better Rangers teams in the last sort of thirty years, Adam. So a bit of background, it just happened that the Rangers won nine in a row, sort of late eighties to, to early nineties, and then Walter Smith had quite a disappointing tenth and uh, going for the tenth title. Um he left in the summer, Dick Advac came in and just sort of revolutionised the, the the team and just give a context of where Rangers were at the time. So Dick Advocate got the job. The kind of managers linked with that were sort of um, Franz Beckenbauer, Svengor Eriksson were, the, were kind of in the, the lineup for that job, which kind of shows you where Rangers were mm. in the mid-90s and the money that we could throw it, uh, at, the, at the team. Uh, and Dick Avocat came in, brought in a, a massive Dutch contingent. Uh, we signed Arthur Newman that summer, who played in the, the sort of that famous Dutch team of 98 in the World Cup. Uh, and just a yeah, free four in football, absolutely fantastic. Dick had two amazing first years at Rangers, um, mm. treble in his first season. Uh, won the title at Celtic Park with a 3-0 victory. I mean, the first dreams are made of in your first season. Second season, again, fantastic. And then the third was an absolute disaster. And, and then it was away. <laughs> but for your first sort of introduction to, to Rangers, and that was a good time. Um, they all, they've not all been like that, but it was a good time yeah. to get into it. I was going to reflect, actually. It sounds like he set the bar quite high for you being your first kind of Rangers experience. So uh, you've got a lot of high expectation against that first experience, I suppose. Um, I don't yeah. know if you reflect in that same sort of sense, but it seems like it anyway. Yeah, I mean, you, you go there and your team are winning and then it wasn't until sort of Martin O'Neill really came in and started mm. winning titles and I'm thinking, Dad, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, what's what's happening here and try to understand that your team don't always win and, and going through that and, and since really you know the 2001-2002 season it was sort of back and forth and raising Celtic to go in cycles one team's on top the next team's on top depending on sort of who's there and what managers are there um, and that carried up until sort of 2012 and I'm sure we'll go into that at some stage but um, yeah fantastic time to get to get into football 
Yeah, so you've probably evaded or alluded to it anyway. So the old firm kind of is the big thing that is known for, I suppose, down south, but I probably would say around the world, to be honest. Um, And I don't think that's too harsh to kind of say. I think it is kind of the big game that everyone knows about historically. Um, So what does that mean to you? Because obviously coming from that kind of Rangers background, is there kind of a more of a kind of personal feeling towards the old firm games? I mean, I know the history is there, but how is it embedded in your family or how is it brought up when you are supporting Rangers? Yeah, I think you've asked two questions. One is it's, it's, the, only, <laughs> it's the only game in Scotland and, and in reality outside of, if you don't support one of the other clubs um, outside of Scotland, it's the only game in Scotland and it's you're quite right to see it. I think, you know, I'm quite biased, but it's probably for me the biggest derby in world football. Um, not in terms of quality, but in terms of everything that entails. And I think the second question was what it means. And if you're a fan of the old firm, it's everything. It's um, it's the first fixtures you look at when, when the schedule comes out. When are we playing them at home? When are we there away? Um, and I was a season ticket holder for four years when I lived up there and getting to go to those games at Ibrox um, when the, both teams were really, really competitive was was absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, it's, it's been into for a young age and particularly because Glasgow is such a mixed city. It's split down the middle between mm. Rangers and Celtic. So you go to school with Celtic fans, you work with Celtic fans. So... It's not like I'm thinking Liverpool, Man United, for example, where mm. the games at the games at the weekend and in the Monday you might not see them for a while. It's you have to yeah. you have to face these guys on the Monday morning, which gives it a added little bit of spice. So, what is that atmosphere like? Because I hear a lot about different atmospheres around the world, not just say local derbies, um, but essentially, I, you know, from what I saw, it's quite a spicy affair. Would that be fair to say? I think that's an understatement. Uh, call, call it a bit spicy. It's it's um, it's almost vile in, in the best possible way. To tell you, Adam, it's um, both sets of fans absolutely loathe each other. Um, but there's a lot of sort of back and forth. The games themselves, the atmosphere is, is absolutely fantastic. And I know they've reduced the away allocation recently to about 300 fans mm. per per group. But when I was going to Ibox, when we play Celtic, they got the whole of um, what was called the Broomland Stand, which is you know ten thousand people. So you'd go in, and I used to sit in the east enclosure at the right hand side of the main okay. stand. You still look up to the left, and it was just you know the wall of green, yellow, and whatever other colours they brought with them. And if uh, if you're winning, it's the it's the you know best afternoon you'll ever have, giving them abuse. But God, if you're losing, it's it's absolutely horrendous as well. <laughs> so yeah. It's interesting you say that because uh, I was listening to another podcast which had Adam Virgo, the old Celtic uh, oh, defender. Yeah. So obviously his career at Celtic wasn't the blast from the past, let's put it that way. Um, but he reflected on his time at Glasgow and he said it was an amazing experience despite the um, feeling from Rangers fans. And one of the things he reflected on was even simple things like getting a taxi in Glasgow. If it was from a Glasgow Rangers fan who was doing the taxi job, he'd refuse flat to take Adam Virgo wherever he wanted. <laughs> Whereas if it was a Celtic fan that was taking him, they would take him and refuse to take any money off him to like take him wherever he wanted. So uh, he so, said uh, it was such an odd feeling because obviously him not being born from Glasgow and him being pretty much really a Southern boy, he felt that was really weird feeling for him to go to a place where that f- kind of feeling was kind of, yeah, to- like you said, toxic, but also, yeah, that feeling is so rich in the sense of, yeah, if you're red or, or should I say in the Glasgow sense, if you're blue or green, right? Yeah. So whatever colour you are, if you're the other opposite, 
then yeah, you don't stand a chance by sounds of it. Yeah, and I think there's talking about taxis now, Virgo, I think there's quite a few Celtic supporters <laughs> where they've paid for his taxi to the airport and a couple of times to <laughs> some of his performances. But yeah, it is like that and it's very much of um, you know, what school you went to, what your family are mm-hmm. like, and it's um yeah, it's absolutely everything and it's another there's probably an entire other pod on, you know, how why why Glasgow the way it is and, and how you can uh, move forward from that and segregation in schools doesn't help. But yeah, it's, it's something that you're spread into you from a very young age and you never really, really use it. But we have we have Glasgow to its credit. We have come a long way from the sort of pitch battles in the 70s and 80s and it's it's not yeah. like that. The police have got, a, for better or worse, a much dripper, a tighter grip on the game. Uh, and when yeah. you go to the game, the, the police presence is phenomenal. Um, so there's, there's very, very rarely ever trouble at games now. City centre pubs and, and pubs in little towns around Glasgow, there absolutely is, you know, after games, but it's, it's nowhere near as bad as... A, it used to be your B, how it's probably portrayed in the press, if I'm honest. So it's, it's getting there, it's getting better. Mm. So I suppose one of the things that I've been interested in, especially with the old firm, is the sectarianism. The history between the two clubs is obviously quite big um, and it goes to Northern Ireland and Ireland itself. And yeah, it's weird to think that that kind of sense of emotion is still a part of that derby. Um, so there's a few questions I've got, but I'll try and break it up a bit. So in terms of the sectarianism, did you come across a lot of that when you were at the games? Um, and how was that to experience? Yes, came a lot, came across a lot of it. What what I also find is fans of both clubs who go to the games, who are immersed in their clubs, the sectarian um, just chanting or abuse, if you want to call it that, mm. back and forth, doesn't really affect you. It's not. It's you. You give it as good as you get, and it's not really a problem. The people who who care more about it is really sort of the police and the politicians. And I think if you if you did an exit poll of every fan and old firm game of do those words offend you, those signal chance offend you, then the answer, the answer is no. So I think we it's water for ducks back to to us. Um, but I mm. think rightly so. I think there's got to be decisions made at sort of government level to sort of stamp it out because it has the cycle has to end somewhere. Um, but in terms of how it affects us, then. To be honest, it's, it's quite enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite interesting you say that. I, I did see um, Paul Gascoigne on the Netflix documentary and he re- reflected on that time where he did the famous celebration, I think it was d- against Dunfermline. So it wasn't even against Celtic. But he said straight after the match, he received <laughs> some hatred, let's put it that way. But in particular, like it was, I'm going to kill you if you ever do that again. And... He had this death threat, essentially, showed it to Walter Smith and Walter Smith was like, straight to police, just take. And apparently that caused him to kind of have panic attacks because he just didn't know what to anticipate. And it was only six months after that incident and the fact that Paul Gascoigne never did that celebration ever again, that person sent him another message through the post and just said, good, you've listened to what I've said. I won't bother you anymore. And I was just like, wow, that is how bad it gets there. But then I kind of also, being a Wickham Wanderers fan, I kind of heard stories from the Martin O'Neill, Steve Guppies, that were obviously part of the uh, Celtic team. And they kind of said uh, times where they had to change phone numbers because obviously being that close relationship between Rangers and Celtic, there'd be Rangers fans calling them after matches. Yeah, uh, there's vice versa as well. Yeah, I wouldn't say yeah, it's just I mean, Rangers, right? No, but, no, it's definitely it's, it's definitely both. And you know, Paul yeah. Gascoigne had death threats, and as for always, he was a football genius. Paul Gascoigne was a bit of a daft boy, and someone 
in the changing room has probably said, this will be a laugh, Paul. This will get a rise, do this. And Paul's probably not really understood the, sort of the gravity of his actions. Yeah. And I think, I think with Glasgow and Northern Ireland, there's a lot of serious people up there who don't take kindly to that. But it's not just, you know, Celtic or Catholics on Rangers. I don't know, Neil Lennon's no. had people through the post and um, Mark Neil did as well. And it's, um, you know, we've got Fran Dixon, um going to Alan Thompson's door at two o'clock in the morning, drunk, mm. offering them out and, you know, all those funny stories, but it's, it is, it's quite, it's obviously a very serious derby and the reason it is, I believe it is the biggest derby in world football is, derbies happen for a number of reasons, Adam, and it's, if it's Arsenal and Man United, it's because they're both going for championships or if it's mm. Sunderland and Newcastle, it's because it's a local derby or if it's even, you know, Boca Juniors River Plate, it's a social thing, but Rangers and Celtic seems to be all of the above and it's, it's, both local clubs, both going for titles every year. It's the religion, it's the politics, and, and everything in Glasgow is either one side or the other. And I think that's what just gives it it gives it its very unique style of it's it's everything that makes a derby good or rolled into mm. one. Yeah, and it's quite interesting to see that because you don't normally see that in other rivalries, but certainly in the Celtic Rangers, you kind of you've probably encapsulated it really nicely. Is the fact that it is a bit of everything it's not just your religion it is also about politics it's yeah. also about it's who everything. you've got supporting you it's just daft things really daft things but it is part of it it's i can't call it daft because that's what it means to people it is yeah. their life essentially so yeah. um yeah quite an interesting insight let's put it that way so let me move on a bit and talk about Rangers and we've spoken outside the podcast around how many talented players Rangers have had down the years um has any kind of stood out as that amazing talent that you'd say you know was just pure joy to watch and I'm sure there's going to be a few you might mention in this but is there one particular player that stands out for you yeah well how long have you got I mean (laughs) keep it to an hour so I've um (laughs) I spoke previously about how lucky I was to just kind of come into the Avocat era and, and see those players. But I was also, on the other hand, really, really unlucky that I came in too late to see Brian Loudrop, Paul Gascoigne, you know, those guys really, really um, light up Rangers in, in the SPL in the mid-90s. But for me, I started, well, my first game was 99-2000. I started really kind of, my dad taking me to football from sort of 2002 onwards. So... So like Ronald De Boer was there, saw Van Bronckhorst, Albert, all these players. For me personally, Barry Ferguson was like, for me, my my favourite ever Rangers player, my first favourite Rangers player he was. Come from a Rangers family, come through the youth system, um, into the squad as a teenager, captain in his early 20s, just a guy who lived the dream. And um, that season, 2002 to 2003, um, when we won the domestic treble, we beat Celtic um, on goal difference the final day of the season. Uh, he was just unlike any player I'd ever seen um, during that and wanted to copy him. And unfortunately, he left that summer for an ill-fated um, time down south and eventually came back. But for me, Barry Ferguson was just everything that you wanted to be as a kid. He just lived the dream. Mm. And did it help that he was a Scottish player as well at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. Because Advocat didn't really trust a lot of Scottish players. So there were there was quite a few decent Scottish players in the in the squad, but the money that we were throwing at it, we just go and get another player, go and get another player. And um, the Cavalier obviously favoured some of the Dutch guys, which caused a friction in the camp. Um, but there's a, a list of Scottish players who were, were serviceable, who didn't really get the chance. But so for us to see a young Scottish player coming through the ranks in a team full of superstars, it was just, yeah, it was fantastic to see. Mm, that's amazing to hear. So the other thing that kind of cropped up in my head is 
despite these plays, and I don't know if you echo these sentiments because I remember one campaign where they got to the final, but with Rangers, they never seem to mount like a serious challenge for a European title. Um, and it seems weird because you look at the quality of players they had, you think, right, this has got the sentiments of a team that could really progress to at least a quarterfinal, semi-final stage. Um, why do you think it never kind of happened? And would you echo those sentiments? Um, yes and no. So I think, well, this brings Celtic into the conference season as well. So Rangers achieved semi-finals of the, the very first Champions League in 92-93. Mm. Um, a, a fantastic um, Gary McAllister-inspired Leeds team. Um, and the, the the quarters got into semis, beat off a of Marseille, who then beat off of AC Milan. Celtic got to the UEFA Cup final, I believe, 2003, and it beat off of Jose Mourinho's Porto. Um, and Deco was there and, and all that gang, and then Rangers got there in 2008. But I think our 2008 one was half luck, half Walter Smith genius. I think we came out of the Champions League in, in third place to uh, Barcelona and Lyon, who both qualified um, and had you know Panathinaikos, Werder Bremen, Sporting Lisbon, and Fiorentina to navigate. And although you know Rangers are good with good players, I think Rangers and Celtic, particularly in recent seasons, when you get to the latter stages, you're bound to run into a sort of a, a decent German team or a decent Serie A team. And I think that just proves a little bit too much. And then trying to attract players to power and play in Scotland. So although the money could potentially be there, yeah. if, as an example, you're a player and you say, right, we're going to Rangers, for example, huge club in, in Scotland. We want to come and, and buy you, but we can only afford to pay you £30,000 a week. If you've got Crystal Palace, an example, um, London, nice place to live, can afford higher wages. Now, although it's not a big club, if you're a young Spanish guy or a young Serie A guy or you've played in the Bundesliga, if you don't really are from Britain, you don't really understand what region Celtic are, to you, it's just it's quite an easy choice. More money, nice city. Um, so I think it's not for lack of trying. And I think although Rangers and Celtic are big clubs and clubs you would expect to see in the latter stages, I think trying to attract players like to come and play in our league, um, and, you know, Scotland's the weather's not very good either. <laughs> so it doesn't, lend, it doesn't lend itself to, to young guys from sort of continental Europe coming over and playing. But yeah, I mean, we can have another pod about the, 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 Europa, um, the Europa League run as well. But it, it'd, be, it'd be great to happen. We got to the sort of last 16 last year and ran into Bayer Leverkusen as, as example, as, as a great example yeah. of a good Rangers side. It just so happens that eventually you're going to run into, run into a good team and that's unfortunately what happened. Yeah. And I suppose if we tie up another question I had on this was Rangers and Celtic always get kind of lambasted with this in the sense of not challenged enough in the Scottish League. Um, and I don't know if that's because of the structure in Scotland or like you've just alluded to, it's kind of hard to attract those talented players to the league. Um, and there's always that comparison of, oh, a League One club could probably beat Rangers or, you know, your Celtic. And I don't think like Rangers and Celtic would do well, even in championship level. I mean, it seems very harsh. And certainly from a lot of podcasts that I've listened to, ex-pros, they kind of reflect the same way. Those especially that do play in the SPL they kind of say actually do you know what I think these clubs would do really well in the Premier League let alone just the Championship so I mean do you feel it is a Scottish, Scottish structural issue or is it you know do you know what it's really hard to attract those top players to the Scottish Premier League because you've got an oyster of different leagues around the world where there's just enough talent there as well and you know great places to live like you've just alluded to 
Yeah, I think, again, two questions are made. I think the first one is, it is hard to attract players to Scotland, particularly if you're a Motherwell or an Aberdeen. And then if you do start to get a good side together to potentially challenge, they just get hoovered up by Rangers or Celtic um, or sort of our clubs down south. And I think for any of those teams to really challenge the top two, I don't think it'll ever, ever happen. Um, and, there's, and again, your second question on Rangers and Celtic performing in, in, in English leagues. There's Rangers and Celtic, and then the drop-off is enormous, Adam. It is absolutely enormous, and I think your, your bottom 10 teams in the SPL are probably League 1, League 2 at a push. Mm. Uh, Rangers and Celtic, let's let's not be a bit of a bush here. Forget the guys on Talk Sport who do it for a quick date. <laughs> there are three worst teams in the Premier League, the Rangers and Celtic. Even now, the Rangers and Celtic are not flying. There are three worst teams in that league, the Rangers and Celtic. Now, with if Rangers and Celtic were into the Premier League as an example. Within five years, I f- would fully expect both of those teams to be top four regularly with the support that both clubs have, the worldwide reach that they both have, uh, and with the money that would be available, I think they absolutely have, which is again, going to that, which, are, which is the reason I don't think they'll ever be in the Devon's Premier League because my understanding is, and what I've read this week, is that you had to admit teams into that league, you have to have a 66% vote on it. So you'd have to have 14 clubs in the Premier League say, yes, we'll, we'll let them in. So if you are Brighton, Palace, West Ham, Aston Villa, Fulham, West Brom, are you going to say yes to having the old fun game, old fun teams in the Premier League? Absolutely not. If you are Wolves or Spurs or Man United, are you going to want them in there because they could potentially in three, four years' time be challenging for European spots? So I think it's probably in the best interest for English clubs to not have them in because the potential um, is, is there, absolutely there, with, the, with the, the drive and the expectation of the fans to do better. I think Rangers and Celtic, within quite a short amount of time, would be at serious Premier League clubs. Do you feel that other teams in Scotland appreciate the old firm, though? Because I get no. a sense of not, not really. They don't kind no, of. They hate, they hate us, mate. They hate yeah. us. <laughs> this is what I. No, I this is crazy <laughs> thing, right? So you can't get love down south. You can't get love where you were based. So you're basically you might as well set up your own mini league between the two of you because yeah, yeah, you just don't seem get... to get much backing. We don't get loved in Scotland, we don't get loved in England, and then we hate each other as well. So it's just <laughs> lots and lots of hate, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's like anything. Rangers and Celtic are, are the only show in town, really, and, and the rest of the Scottish teams really resent that. I think maybe I'm biased and, and got my, my tin hat on, but I feel that the hatred is, is more towards Rangers, and I think that's, you know, we have another whole other pod on the sort of unionism and independence um, debate and in Scotland, Rangers equals unionism, and unionism equals bad. And I yeah. think we get a lot of we get a lot of hatred for that as well. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, there's the other teams in Scotland don't like the old firm. But then again, the only reason that anyone outside of Scotland tunes in to watch Scottish football is when Rangers Celtic are playing. So, as an example, Rangers are Celtic are away to I believe St Johnston tomorrow. Now, the only reason St Johnston are ever going to be on Sky Sports on a Sunday afternoon is because one of the old firm are playing. Yeah. With the greatest respect, and if there's any other Scottish fans listening to this, no one is tuning in to watch Kilmarnock versus Livingston in England. It's just not. With the no. amount of t- football that's on at the moment, it's just not happening. So, yes, it's a double-edged sword for these clubs. They don't really like us, but we are a source of revenue. We are the ones who are pushing in Europe to get um, our coefficient up, which is why Aberdeen and Motherwell have both played in Europe this year. Um, unsu- pretty unsuccessfully, granted, but they've been there and they've got that payday. Um so although, yeah, they're not our biggest fans, we are providing um, through TV money and championship sort of game money um, to these clubs. Yeah, 
And I think if I reflect on some of the transfers that have been coming in from, say, the English like lower leagues as well, you kind of start to see the talented players kind of try and test themselves in the SPL. Um, not that I feel like it's kind of them bridging the gap between themselves and where Rangers and Celtic are right now, but certainly you're starting to see a bit more kind of they're trying to compete. I think Aberdeen have been there or thereabouts for the last few years. Granted, Rangers were out of the equation for a number of years, so that's probably helped them a bit. Um, but yeah, certainly I'm starting to see a lot more of the teams like your Hibernian, uh, to an extent Hearts as well, um, but mainly Aberdeen, where they are pushing for that third and fourth spots now, aren't they? So um, who's to know in a few years' time, they might have the potential to move on. But I think you've, you've alluded to it already, where you've kind of said, if they do have a good team, they get sucked up by the likes of Rangers or Celtic for their best players. So it's really difficult to establish that team, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And whether it's a whole team unit, I'm thinking about the sort of Hibs team in the the sort of mid mid two thousands. That was sort of the Gary O'Connors, Scott Brown was there, Kevin Thompson was there, Ian Murray, Derek Radden. That was a fantastic little team they built, and it just got pulled up. It just got absolutely ripped apart. It's almost like this is a quite an extreme example, but like yeah. an Ajax, where if, if they get a good team, they just get picked off. And whether that's a team unit and they really really challenge, or if it's one or two really good players. They just get they just get picked up. So I'm looking at, for example, this summer Celtic signed um, Turnbull from um, from Motherwell a couple of seasons ago. Rangers signed Aberdeen's captain Ryan Jack on a free. Um, Jordan Jones last year, Jake Hasty the year before. So anytime there is a good young talent, mm. they just get pulled up, and that makes it even even harder for the clubs below us. Yeah, definitely. So let us rewind to a point that you said earlier. So it was around the third season of Dig Vodkax and what he actually achieved at Rangers that season. Now, I'm trying to think around that period, but there seems to be a bit of decline, uh, both on the pitch and off the pitch as well. And it kind of led to this kind of depression where you kind of experienced the last decade of liquidation, ownership turmoil and financial debt. I mean, how how did that play out for you when you were supporting the team at the time? Um, I, I can't I can go back to, to the advocate years. I can't really remember an awful lot of, of mm. what that was like, but that wasn't a financial problem. That was more sort of the advocate prioritizing Europe um, and then dividing the changing room. But 2012 and what happened to us then is very, very much kind of fresh in the mind. And um, yeah, Rangers essentially were, were relegated to the third division, um, went into administration rescued last minute um, and then we've gone through a series of of just absolute bandits um, to be honest mate until very very recently and um, we got our, we got our club back and that, I think that's well and truly behind us now I think we've definitely turned a page um, with, the, with the guys that are in charge of the club at the moment three years of, of Europa League qualification um, it's good to see that the club are not kind of buying beyond our means as well um, but there's some real green shoots of progress where as an example we spent you know seven million pounds on Ryan Kent um, last year for the permanent deal after he was here on loan. So um, we're not back to pre-spending time. I don't think we ever will be. I don't think the money's there in Scottish football, but uh, it's some real kind of signs of progress that we can go out and, and attract clubs. And don't get me wrong, the, the Gerard Stephen Gerrard factor is a, a part of that as well, being able to attract um, sort of good young English players um, to come up. Ryan, Jack, Jermaine Defoe, though he's not young. I mean, if Stephen Gerrard's not the manager of Rangers Football Club, I don't think Jermaine Defoe's playing in Scotland at the moment. Calvin Bassey, a young left back from from Leicester, we got him on uh, up. Joe was another one. So um, having having a name like Stephen Gerrard, um, although he's improved the, the, the team, you know, tactically as well, he, having that name there definitely attracts some of the best young talent in England. 
So interesting that you um, alluded to Steve Gerrard. Um, I was going to ask you that question, but how would you reflect his tenure so far at Rangers? Do you think it's been successful or is it still progressive? I mean, how, how do you reflect on his period so far? Yeah, you, you can't call it successful because to Rangers fans, the only thing that success is trophies. Um, mm. So you, you can't call it successful, but you can't deny that it, there's been progress. Um, and I think just a, as an example, I wrote down a couple of numbers here as I was researching this this morning. So in 2008, Rangers were 24th in the European coefficient. So 24th best team in, in Europe. In 2018, when Steven Gerrard took over, we were at 262nd. And today we're at the back up to 69th. So that just that progression in Europe is absolutely there. We are we are progressing. As like I said, we've, we've qualified for the Europa League three years in a row now. And off the back of that, Scotland will have two Champions League places next year. Yeah. Um, which is fantastic for the game. We've not driven Celtic close enough in the league. So the league was called last year um, early, although, you know, being honest, we probably wouldn't have caught them anyway. But we beat them in the New Year game 2-1 at Celtic Park and we went two points clear. You know, the title was in our hands. We came back from the, the winter break, had an absolute uh, horror show after that and fell away again. But the, the progress is there. That was the first win at, at Parkhead for, I think it was eight years. Um so real progress there. We've beaten them at Ibrox twice in recent seasons. So head to head, I I feel we can we're there. We're absolutely there. It's for us a little inconsistencies, getting that sort of championship mentality, and I think we're there about. But like you said, you can't for Rangers fans. The only thing that success is, is trophies. I think he probably has to win something this year. If not, if not the title, definitely a cup um, to again show progress. So Europe's great, and that qualifying for Europe League's fantastic. But Celtic had won three trebles in a row. Um, the Scottish Cup is continuing for some unexplainable reason. That'll be their fourth consecutive treble. So that that has to be broken. We have to start winning trophies. Um, and I think once we get the first one, I think the second and third will pretty quickly follow, but it's still on that championship mentality. Mm. You've got to look at that again. Not a lot of the players that we've got in our squad have, have gone the distance. We've got Alan McGregor, Stephen Davis there. But a lot of these are kind of young players coming through and they're not winners. Yeah, saying they've not been there, they've not done it, they don't know what it takes. But I think once we get that first one over the line, we'll get there. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think it feels like Celtic are there to be taken. Um, and certainly last season, you kind of saw them kind of really struggling in the league. Um, and I, I felt like, do you know what? This is definitely a sign that they could really just like concede, concede for the first time in a while. And I don't, I feel like. It's been great to have Rangers challenging them because they've been maybe a bit laxical about the whole thing and, you know, they've been kind of taking it for granted to an extent. And I do feel like right now, Rangers right now have got the ability to potentially really push them this year in terms of title. Um, but I also feel like Gerard's made some really sloppy decisions. Um, and I don't know whether that be tactically potentially here. But I, I feel like his management of certain players like Morales seems to pop up in terms of the amount of red cards that probably probably cost you. I've, I'd like to think it has. Um, and, you know, him being on the pitch has been a real difficulty, hasn't it, over the last few years? I don't know why it seems to be that he hasn't got that temperament into like a place. And like you kind of started to see during this window before the st season started that it seems like, there was that push maybe of Morales, if you don't get your act together, you're going to be moved on. And yeah, it's interesting that he's still at the sides. I mean, what do you feel about that situation so far? 
Oh, again, that's another. That could be another pod in itself. Um, the Morelos, <laughs> the Morelos conundrum. So, Alfredo Morelos is a blessing and a curse. When he is, when he is on it, he is absolutely unplayable. Um, and he does have that temperament. And I don't think when he said it was Gerard, I don't think it's it's all Gerard. I think Gerard supported him when he needed supported. He's criticised him when he needed criticised. I think there's a whole other conversation about how Morelos is managed and sorry, and the uh, refereed in Scotland. Mm. I think referees cannot wait to book him. I think there's a there's almost like kind of quite a disturbing xenophobic undercurrent to some of how he's reported in the news. Um, but when he's on fire, Adam, he is he is unplayable. Um, you don't want him to lose that aggressive streak because he is a he's one of those big bulldozer bully players, knocks defenders out of the way. But he has shown in the last sort of you know, six to eight months, a sign of maturity. As an example, we beat Galatasaray 2-1 on Thursday night to qualify for the, the group stages. And he got, he got you know, elbows in the face, kicked around all over the park and it knocked a peep out of him. You know, we were very well behaved. Whereas that happened two years ago, it'd have been, it'd have been you know, fist cuffs. But he's definitely progressing. I think he's always wanted to use Rangers as a stepping stone, which is fine. That's the reality of the situation. Uh, and he's wanted to play in one of the big five leagues. Uh, and the, the kind of interest at the moment is through Lille in France, yeah. who are coming in again for a bid. I think it's probably time for Morelos to go. Um, I think he's been a fantastic servant for the club. He leaves with with all of our best wishes, but I think he he wants to move on. Um, and I think you know an unhappy Morelos should he not get his move could be quite a disruption. But listen, when he when he's gone, I'm I'm quite confident that if he goes to a league where he gets a fair a fair you know refereeing performance for each week, then he could really really excel. And I can quite see him if he goes to Lille potentially playing at a bigger club in two or three years' time. He's still a young guy. Yeah. Um, we signed him for a reported £1 million and it's looking like we're going to get about £20 million, um, return off him from, from, from Lille. So, you know, he can't say more than that. He's given us a lot and he's given us a lot of good times. Um, yeah, he goes with a, a blessing. If he does go, we've signed Kamar Roof and Cedric Hitton. Almost everyone thought it was his replacement. Mm. But I think now as qualifying for the Europa League, we're not in any sort of financial obligation to sell. Yeah. So, if he, st- if he stays and bangs in 15, 20 goals and we've got the league title, then then he's more than welcome to stay. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he'd love to keep him, right? Because he's been yep. a gem for you guys over the last few years. What a find, yeah. What yeah. a find that was, yeah. Yeah, pulled him from Helsinki, mm. million quid signing, and very, very raw still. But yeah, he's, he's getting there and he's, he'll, he'll be a big talent for years to come, I'm sure. So hypothetically, let's say Lil do sign him for 20 million. Do you think there's any areas of that team that need maybe that investment or need one or two more signings or do you think you're quite happy just cash in and you know maybe save that for the following season no I think we, we definitely need one we, we are crying out for a, a box-to-box midfielder uh, so we've got our back four are, are as solid as they come we had you know seven clean sheets in the first nine games in the league Connor Goldson and, and Philip Hellander are two centre halves phenomenal Borna Barisic left back the Croatian first choice left back James Tavernier it's been a revelation for, for us this year. Um, come back into form. We tend to play two holding midfielders in, in Kamara and Jack, and that works fantastically in Europe, where teams come at as you need those two players. But when you play at home, unless you're playing Celtic, really, a lot of teams just it's two two flat banks of four, really, really kind of sitting really, really deep, and we need that, a box to box midfielder to really get back and forth, and back and forth. And we've been linking quite a few yet, but nothing's coming through. Hmm. Now, I believe the transfer window shuts on Monday. Is yes. it Monday? Yeah, Monday. So we need to move quickly. Um, I'd be amazed if, if I think if Morelos is in the starting lineup for our game tomorrow, then I think he's staying. Uh, whether or not we can then go and afford to to bring another player is, you know, that's for the accountants. But I think 
we're definitely crying out for that player, and I, don't, I think if we don't, um, there might be some criticism coming out of the Rangers staff because it's been quite obvious to a lot of fans for quite some time that we're missing that all-action box-to-box midfielder. Because Steve Davis used to be that man, but yeah. he's, you know, in his 30s now, mid-30s, he he's got legs, a right. different kind of player. He's just a different kind of player now. First mm-hmm. time round, he was that man for us. He's just... What we really need is a, a 24-year-old Barry Ferguson, is what we, is what we, <laughs> we, is what we really what need. What you're alluding but to is like he that. needs to have a son, quickly bring him we, into youth team, and then, yeah, he's you're there. He's there, ready for you. Right? The problem is, I feel like that now is probably a £25 million player, and they don't play Very Scotland. True. Very true. What do you think is the next steps for Rangers as a club? Because I always feel like, does it really need a rich owner or potentially a consortium to really push them on to be as big in terms of contention around SPL and Europe or do you feel they're on the right steps right now? I think we're definitely on the right steps right now. I think it, it won't take um, a ritual or a consortium to, to sort of dominate the SPL again. I think we're getting there and we're getting back to where we belong. Um, Rangers have won 54 league titles, the most of any club in world football. Um, 114 domestic trophies in our, in our history. Again, the most in world football. So we feel like we are the biggest club in Scotland. Um, and I think we're getting there. And I think when we came back into the, the Premier League, it was always going to take Rangers to get much, much better and for Celtic to regress. And I think since Brendan Rodgers, who has become a bit of a comedy figure, but he is a good coach. He is yeah. a good coach. And when he was at Celtic, he elevated them to a level where the SPL, they just, they just blew teams away. And I think now that They've changed their manager. I think last year they've regressed. This year it will be again. And I think we are we're on the trajectory um going forward. Um so I think the SPL does not need that. I think Europe, it depends on your ambitions. I think if you said to Rangers fans, we're gonna get a consortium in, we're gonna put money in it, take gambles on big money um signings and go for it in Europe, I think we'd probably say thanks, but no thanks, based on what we've mm. been through. I think we're quite happy to at the moment push to get through group stages into the last sort of knockout phases of Europe um, and dominate um, Scottish football. But I think, I don't think many Rangers fans would, would bite your hand off for, for massive signs again based on where we've been. I think we're, we're quite happy where we are at the moment. <laughs> Good times. So finally on the Rangers stuff for now, what has been your best ever moment as a Rangers fan? What was it and why? Uh, I'll... There's two games. I can't. I can't pick between them. So there's two games. One, one in May of two thousand and five. If any Rangers fans listening, that the hairs will start to spin up on their on their arms now. Um, it's kind of affectionately known in Scotland as, as Helicopter Sunday. Um, so into the last okay. game of the season, Celtic are ahead on points. They are playing away at Motherwell. We are playing away at Hibs now. All Celtic have to do is equal our result, and they've won the league. Um. Celtic go up early through a, a Chris Sutton goal. They're winning one nil, uh, and we obviously think that no, that's it. Then they've won the league. Um, we score our goal. Nacho Novo scores a good goal against Hibs, so it's one all. So unless unless Motherwell score here, Celtic have won the league. Uh, and we're all my dad and I were actually listening to it on the radio. I don't know why. It must not be on television. Or we didn't have Sky. I, I can't remember. But my dad and I are, are in the living room listening to the radio. And in the eighty eighth minute, Scott McDonald, who went on to later play for Celtic, scores an equaliser. My dad and I go. I won't swear, go absolutely, absolutely tonto. Um, and then, you know, 30 seconds, 40 seconds later, Scott McDonald scores a second. And before you know it, in the space of 90 seconds, Celtic have gone from, you know, above us in the league. We're now, we're now a point clear and Rangers win the league. And it's effectively known as Helicopter Sunday because the helicopter which had the Premier League trophy was, in, was on its way to, to Fur yeah. Park in Motherwell to give Celtic and it had to do a U-turn 
and take the trophy back to Edinburgh where we were playing as well. Uh, and then my dad and I jumped in the car, went up to Ibrook Stadium, they were letting people in. Um, had a few beers with my dad in the stadium waiting for the team to come back. Came back on the bus, came through, um, people were just sneaking booze into the stadium and had a nice day in the sunshine and the, the team came out. Barry Ferguson um, walking around the, the park with the trophy that afternoon was just, it's just phenomenal. Just not expecting it and going into a day expecting the worst and, and coming out with a, a result like that was just was just something I'll never ever forget, especially when you're in the living room with your, with your dad. Um, and you get to share that moment of just looking at each other in utter disbelief of what's happening. Uh, and then the second one has to be the night in, in Florence where Rangers qualified for the Europa League final in 2008. Um, really, really nervous draw over there. Went to penalty kicks. Um, Christian Vieri, of all people, missed for Fiorentina. Um, and you're just thinking, wow, they had Sebastian Frey, the kind of Italian legendary goalkeeper, in, mm. and then upsteps little Nacho Novo. I think it was Martin Tyler in the commentary. And as Novo's running up to hit his penalty, Martin Tyler says, Manchester, where the final was being held, brace yourselves. And you just get that that feeling, and you just you know you know that Nacho's going to score. Yeah. He scores, runs over, and then Martin Tyler's shouting, Rangers are coming, Rangers are coming. And it was the same year, I believe, that Man United and Chelsea played the Champions League final in Russia. And there was a whole yeah, a whole muck up correct, of yeah. visas and passports and trying to get the fans over to Russia. And Martin Tyler's next sentence is, they don't need passports, they don't need visas, Manchester's not big enough. And my dad and I and my brother are jumping around in the, in the living and watching this, watching this game. And it's just little <laughs> things like that when, you know, your family around about you and those, you know, and it's the thing that only your, your favourite club can give you really, that, that kind of euphoria. But those two, I mean, we can go on about it all day, but those are the two for me that really, really stand out. Amazing. What do you remember of that final? My dad and I actually went down to Manchester with my uncle. So oh, wow. we, okay. we we drove down. I mean, don't get me wrong, everyone went down. I think there was about 200,000 people there. <laughs> yeah, there was more um, more people outside the, the stadium, I think, if I remember right. Yeah, they set up two big fan zones and we left early, early in the morning. Couldn't get a hotel um, anywhere near Manchester at all. So my dad just drove down. So we drove down in the morning. I think we got into Manchester at sort of half past 10, 11 o'clock. Um, I would have been 17 at the time. So we're into the kind of Tesco's and Sainsbury's looking for beer. The entire town has been drunk dry. There, there is not a case of beer or wine oh or whiskey to be had. And now it is. And standing in Tesco's with just 300 Rangers fans singing songs, fantastically sunny day, shuts are off. And it was just, just an absolute experience. Watched the game. The game itself, I can't remember a lot about it. I've never watched it back. Don't want to mm. see it. Um, and we just we came up against a very, very good Zenit yeah. Petersburg. And we actually they beat, I think they beat Bayern Munich in the semis. Yes. Yeah, um like they put them out and it was the Andre Arshavin, um, I believe Pavlochenko who went up with the Spurs. Yeah. It was that team and yeah, just, just came up against a really, really good team. And um yeah, bittersweet memories, fantastic day out. The lead up to that that final of knowing you're gonna go down with your um, your family to to watch the game, getting there fantastic and then, you know, not not a great game and a miserable drive back up. But mm. Yeah, it was fantastic, and it's something I don't think I'll see again in my lifetime. Is no. Rangers in a, in a European final? And I think it was ironic; it was the next Rangers manager that was Dick Advocate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've gone full circle. Yeah. Dick Advocate, who was the manager for my first ever game, was the manager who beat us in the Europa League final. It's a funny, it's a funny it game, is, isn't it? It is, but bittersweet memories. That's all I can say. It sounds like that yeah. that kind of run up to it was amazing. Anyway. <laughs> Those from the 90s may recall the background music. It was a famous Football Italia theme tune that made many Sundays enjoyable. 
It was one of the influences of Craig's second team, Roma. So let's move on to your second love. I think this is going to be a surprise for many of the listeners, really. So how did you come in love with Roma? How did that all happen? Yeah, this is going to sound really silly now that we're talking about it. So I I became a Roma supporter or started following Roma really through the old championship manager PC football games. <laughs> so yeah. I got my, my first one was championship manager 2001-2002, which I'm sure some of your listeners have been playing, and, and I still play to this day when, when time permits. And in that game, I'm sure, I'm sure it will bring back memories, Roma had just this absolutely phenomenal squad, and I used to enjoy playing with Roma because I just wanted to win the game. Um, and that was the sort of the, the Cafu, Walter Samuel, Totti, Montella team, Batistuta. Started watching, started um, you know playing, playing with them on FIFA and um, Championship Manager, and then, of course, the sort of Saturday mornings, um, Gazetta Football Italia. I watched that with my dad, and just yeah, we kept a, kept an eye on Roma. And then, very very lucky, finally made the the journey over to watch them play in the Olympico last year. Um, thankfully, before sort of all the all the COVID happened, and it was a bit of a, a dream of mine to go over and see them. And because it was in Rome, I managed to convince other half that uh, it was a good place to go as well. <laughs> well, you can't turn down Rome, right? If, no, even I, if it's not just for the football, right? Yeah, it was, yeah, it's a lovely, lovely city. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I was going to refer back to uh, Football Italia and Gazetta because certainly yeah. from my earliest memories, that was just amazing. And I didn't kind of appreciate James Richardson until I saw a clip back recently of how sarcastic he was, especially about certain managers, which, you know, I think for the viewers, they just have to type in Football Italia onto YouTube and they'll see plenty of clips where James Richardson just really takes the mickey out of certain managers at the time. One springs to mind is Hector Cooper, where he had Ronaldo, Christian Vieri and Alvaro Recoba. That's right, yeah. And he kind of jokes around um, because Recoba had come back from a suspension. I think it was like an eight-month suspension. I think it was some sort of drug, sort of substance that he had taken. And anyway, he jokes about... Um, yeah, he'll come back into the squad to play in Hector Cooper's really defensive uh, attacking style. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just little phrases like that. You're just like, boy, I wish I actually appreciated James Richardson and what he was saying at the time because I was just a little kid sometimes watching this. So it was absolutely amazing. But just to refer back to those kind of football Italian Gazetta, did that kind of get you to appreciate Italian football at the time as well? Yeah, absolutely. And just to talk about James Richardson, I... I used to look at him sitting in a cafe and, you know, Roma Trent or whatever he filmed it on a Saturday morning reading his paper on his coffee and just think, what an asshole. But look, <laughs> looking by now, I'm jealous. What a perfect way to spend a Saturday morning, you know, sitting and sitting and chewing in, drinking a coffee. Um, but yeah, you're right. So I, I think at the time, sort of early 2000s, I started to watch um, a lot of Champions League football as well. And I think you would remember the Champions League used to be on terrestrial television, used to be on sort of mm. um, ITV and STV and... Yeah. So I think it was you know every second week you would get Champions League football and it would usually be an English club playing against you know AC Milan or Inter or Juventus or these clubs and kind of really piqued my interest in foreign football as well because you got to see players and talents you just didn't see in Scotland. Uh, it just it just absolutely blew your mind of what was possible and you know watching Batistuta just kind of run through the Serie A at that time was just was phenomenal. But yeah, definitely definitely got me into sort of foreign football in the first first instance. I feel like Italian football also has. 
this possible like kind of vision of it's quite a boring mundane kind of game because they are kind of slow paced at times but i don't feel that's really fair because actually when you look at the type of players they've got they're really quite kind of attackive or attackive in terms of the sense of they can use pace when they need to but they're actually they more systematically think about what they're doing with the ball and it's driven in terms of tactics i feel a lot more um do you feel italian football is that kind of bed around understanding how to play the game appropriately and when to attack and when to defend for example it's, it's definitely the most tactically minded league in europe i think mm. and i think it gets a bit of a bad rep adam i think yeah one of us once upon a time Serie A was definitely the boring the boring cousin of the premier league you know really really defensive you know one nils and two ones and i think there's, there's been a bit of a renaissance in italian football recently with um sort of you know Maurizio Sarri's um, Napoli team as an example um, and Zaghi's Lazio team are playing really really well and then even sort of Gasparini with Atalanta I mean Atalanta you know seen Champions League last year are just what a bag of fun those guys are I mean they just go out and they, they just don't care just just go out and play 3-5-2 super attacking um, so I think it's there's going to be a bit of a renaissance recently not Roma we'll come on to them in a minute yeah. but I think Italian football definitely is it's turning a corner and becoming quite an exciting league to watch yeah, definitely. And I think when you think about Roma, you automatically think about Totti and the amount yeah. of like turns he did. And you've referred to it actually at the beginning when you're talking about Batistuta, Montella. I mean, there's been some amazing plays even pre those sort of periods as well. So you think of Cafu as well. I think yeah. amazing right back. And I don't feel people appreciate the Roma team back then. But even going forward, um, when I looked at a YouTube video recently about what was the considered the best players for Roma, they all referred to the most recent additions. So your likes of Salah, for example, and Lamella. But I don't actually feel they actually sit in the right position because actually I feel they're below the likes of Batistuta and Totti, for oh, example, yeah. De Rossi, for example. So um, what I think is a common theme, though, here is Roma have had some amazing, talented players, but they've never... I don't know if maybe I'm just looking at it in the wrong way, but I don't feel like they've actually had great squads. They've never been able to assemble those potential quality players into a squad that could go on to achieve anything and say break the dominance in Serie A because you know they've only won three Scudettos, um, yeah. and that's that seems weird for me because I think like they've had some really good players. So, what do you think has kept them back? Is it a financial thing or is it just Roma being Roma. I think you're absolutely right. I think the last great squad they had was the squad we referred to. I think that early mm-hmm. turn of the century when they won the Scudetto in 2001, that was the team. And I think since then, it's it's not been there. Roma are Roma. Um, they have had some financial difficulties. But I think more than anything, it speaks to the strength of the league. And I think you look at, you know, they won their, their previous Scudetto in the 70s. And you know, since then, you've had Maradona's Napoli or... You know, Van Basten's AC Milan or Del Piero's Juventus or Ronaldo's Inter, and it's just they go through in cycles. And even that, that Lazio team under Svengo and Eriksson, um, you know, the one mm. Sebastian Veron, the, the phenomenal team. And yeah. I think it just speaks to the strength of the league. You know, Roma are, are a strange team, and they're at a crossroads right now. We um, just get bought over by the, the Friedkin Group, which are an American conglomerate, multi billion dollar industry company. Um, and if you know if they want to and they want to put the money in it, Rome, Rome's a nice city. I can quite easily see them becoming a, you know, maybe a PSG style model and really challenge Juventus coming forward. But they're definitely at a crossroads. Paolo Fonseca, quite a functional manager, organised the team really, really well. But I think 
if Roma want to seriously challenge, we need to make a decision now. Um, and I'd love to see us, I know you and I have spoken offline on some of the kind of coaches that we, we fanboy over in Germany at the moment, some of those kind of young mm. philosophy-style coaches who will, um, not too dissimilar to what Klopp did in Liverpool, is come in, we've got a three, four, five-year plan, we're going to build a team around this plan, and we're going to aim for the Scudetto in 2025. Um, if we don't do that, I can just see this being a you know challenging for the top for every year cycle. Um, and I think we need to make a decision pretty quickly of, are we happy with that? Or do we really see us going back to that sort of championship level? And, you know, the biggest team in Rome, in my opinion, and they should be challenging for, for titles. So ironic we kind of talk about it right now, but Lazio are also in a kind of position where they're really challenging right now under Nzaghi. Yeah. And they seem to be building this really talented squad right now. So... It's going to be difficult when you consider your bit of rivals are also doing kind of a similar job right now where they're really progressing. Um, and I think right now you've alluded to the American ownership, but it seems to be where potentially with the new stadium talks, and I know they've been delayed for a number of years. So we, Although I say it as kind of a new thing, it actually isn't a new thing. It's been ongoing for a number of years and it still hasn't been decided to this day if they're going to take that work. So um, it's interesting that it's kind of maybe hindering the club I mean I certainly feel that's probably the next step but do you feel that's where they naturally have to do is move to a similar model to Juventus and go away from those kind of shared like homes and you know really build like that kind of dominance in Italy uh, I, I don't think I'm not sure if, it, if it's hindering the club and I'm not sure a stadium would be the, the sort of the magic silver bullet um, mm. but I, I think the Olympic Court albeit it's a fantastic stadium but it does have the running track um, yeah the atmosphere does seep out of it, although the cover suit when we were there was phenomenal. And I was there on last October, potentially. Yeah, about a year right. ago now. Um, we played AC Milan at home. Uh, atmosphere was fantastic. 50,000 people in the stadium. But it was still a quarter empty, Adam, and you can still see empty seats all around. Mm. And it's just, if you if you went to a custom-built stadium that was your own, no running track, right on top of the grass, Um I, you can't you know, the atmosphere absolutely would, would help the team um, I, said, I don't think it's to be on end all but if this ownership want to, want to really go and spend the money I think a stadium would be a good and the Olympic is old that is an old stadium and you know not, I'm not saying go out and replicate what Spurs have done to that level because that is you know one of the best arenas in the world right now but no. something similar where you know the fans can get right close to the pitch and, and create that atmosphere it would, would be a move forward yeah Definitely. And I think personally, that's probably the way a lot of Italian teams are going. I mean, I've certainly seen AC Milan have got their plans and that's more of a refurbishment as far as I understand with the San Siro. So it's potentially sharing with the likes of Inter Milan as well. But yeah, I think that's generally where clubs need to go really right now. I feel that's the next step and they've kind of seen what Juventus have done. And essentially in terms of their profile, it certainly seems to be kind of what a lot of Italian teams are starting to grasp in terms of this is the next step because financially it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but just to refer now back to the Roma team current day, so they've made a pretty unspectacular start. to. What have you made of the start so far? Is this around expectations? Granted, they drew with Juventus, but yeah, are these kind of dodgy starts really going to cost Roma season this year? It counts as a, a loss, but two draws. The Verona game was, was pretty uninspiring, but come back after lockdown, bit of, bit of tired legs. The Juventus game, Roma played really well, really, really well. Um, Juventus went down to 10 men. Uh, Rabio 
was just desperate to get set off. I mean, it was coming for 50 minutes. I don't know why Pirlo persisted. Um, Roma played really well. Jekyll had two absolute cut-edge chances, which on any other day he scores. Um, yeah. And Roma played well, really, really gave it to him. I think the plan, the, the goal for this season for Roma has to be to break out the top four. I mean, last year you had Juventus who will, who will win it this year again. Well, Conte's Inter, Inter will always challenge. And then there's a third and fourth place. Now, last year that was Atalanta and Lazio. Mm. I think that's got to be Roma's target this year. Is back into the Champions League football. Um, Chiro Immobile for Lazio last year was just a sensation. Yeah. Just absolutely banging them in. Couldn't stop scoring. I can't see him doing that again. So will Lazio drop a few places? And I think, you know, finished eight points behind fourth last year is not good enough. Um, and I think that's going to be the, the, the short-term goal is, is top four back into the Champions League. And then it'll depend on the, on the new ownership of is that satisfactory or, or are we going to really challenge Juventus? Certainly looking at the squad as well, there's not too many big names. Um, but there seems to be a lot of younger players coming through as well at the same time. So in your head, expectation-wise, you should be still challenging for the top four? Or do you feel Roma still need to add before you can kind of comfortably say we'll be in the top four? I think I think Roma right now with this squad, well, it's a question. Nicolo Zaniolo, who is... You know, by far our, our best out and out player, our best young player as well, mm. has Tony's ACL again. So he missed large parts of last season with his right knee, I believe. Came back, tore his left ACL playing for Italy. So he's got another season out. And without him, it'll be a challenge because he's out and out our most exciting young player. Um, I think Roma are probably still a top four team for the reasons I explained. I, I do not think Lazio can perform at that level again. How many times can Inzaghi go to the well of just expecting Immobile to just bang the goals in? Um, and then Atalanta, you know, maybe I'm being hopeful, but they've got to slow down at some stage. I mean, surely they can't, they can't do that again. But I think we've got to be challenged for top four. I think we've got the squad to do it. But then uh, AC Milan resurgent as well. AC Milan, who have been an absolute abortion for the last four or five years, are really, really coming through um, and, and producing some good stuff as well. So it'll be, it'll be a challenge, absolutely a challenge. But I think top four is where we need to be. Definitely, and I think. You saw a little bit of resurgence in terms of AC Milan this year. Inter Milan could be there or thereabouts, depending if they can get their off-field debate with Conte sorted. I don't know what's happening with that, to be fair. And then you've got the likes of Juventus that will be there or thereabouts, but they're still on the cusp of they could easily flunk that season, couldn't they? They could easily just really come to parts if they don't sort it out, especially with this... New vision with Perlo. Um, it's quite a bold decision from the outside, uh, considering there was nothing wrong when they had Allegri, right? No, nothing wrong at all. But I think Juventus have, have been known for that sort of very pragmatic, win at all costs, very boring style. And the problem has been you win six, seven, eight titles in a row. The fans get you know, bored of winning, essentially. Mm. And it's we like, the next evolution is we want to play well. That's why Allegri was essentially asked to go. They thought that Maurizio Sarri would be that man to sort of bring in Sari Ball and, and get them playing well yeah. didn't work at all. And the next evolution is Perlo. So they will start to move away from that pragmatic win at all costs, almost sort of bastardry, as I like to call it, of that just <laughs> that mentality. And it's got to be admired. They will start to move away from that and try to play better football. And you're absolutely right. If Conte's Inter can sort themselves out um, and if they can keep um, Latero Martinez up front, then they're, a, they're a, a potentially, potentially a good team to, to challenge Juventus. And I think outsiders, if you look at how well Atlanta did as well, I mean, that was one hell of a squad, right? Yeah, yeah, they've been absolutely fantastic. Um, again, it's just that free-flowing style of not expecting to, yeah, we'll just outscore you. We'll just outscore you at all costs. And 
Um, yeah, yeah, they've, they've been absolutely excellent. Um, I, I, I can't see them doing it again. Surely not. Surely they've got to kind of slow down at some stage. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, the At- Atalanta player De Ruin, who was signed from Middlesbrough, said in the training sessions their coach has been very much about they've got to pass forward. He hates them passing backwards. And if he sees them passing backwards, he actually finds them. So <laughs> it just goes to show you, he's just all about the frills and less about the uh, result essentially. But I, I thought their like European games were amazing. The amount of attractive football they were playing, but also, you know, they didn't give a damn. They just kind of went for it. And uh, I felt that was quite refreshing because you don't see that very often. No, you don't. I think they, they just, the last step we finished in the top six, fantastic. And we'll just, We'll just go for it, which is why it's one of the teams other than Roma. I love watching Atalanta. I mean, they're in, they, they fell into the sort of the good side of the Champions League draw. And I remember a lot of commentators mm. were saying, "Do you know what? They will give they'll give quite a few good teams um, a good game." And they come against PSG, didn't they? And the, yeah, yeah and the PSG it. scored the, the two late goals, and you know you really felt for them because they played so well, and you know unlucky for them. But then again, it's similar to the Scottish the Scottish situation of. Those players will start to get picked off. I, I, I have no doubt, and yeah. whether those players can go well, we love what we do at Atlanta. But the, the draw of sort of Juventus and Inter and, and these clubs, in, they might see themselves go through a cycle themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, Atlanta is one of those sides that aren't known for really being the top of Serie A. Uh, I think they've done really well for where they've come from. Um, but also they've got a number of uh, experienced players which I don't think they'll be picked off from the likes of, say, your AC Milan's or Inter Milan's, which are just down the road in, from Bergamo. Yeah. But cer- certainly they've got some talented players, especially the front line right now. Um, I'm alluding to Illich because I think even at his age, he could still do a good job for one of the top teams. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just We'll have to wait and see on that. Yeah, absolutely. But alluding to um, Fonseca as well, I mean, what was your impressions of how he started with Roma just since he's joined the club? Um, but yeah, you've had some coaches down in the years that have kind of brought success. And I'm not so sure where the vision is with Fonseca. So what's your impression so far? Fonseca's come in, did a fantastic job at Shakhtar Donetsk. And he's come in, that's a stable side, defend reasonably well. Um, but we're not exciting football. We're not able to challenge um, the sort of the top teams, albeit we beat Juventus in the last game of the season last year. Um, and it just feels like there's no real um, sort of philosophy or way of playing. It's just yeah, very pragmatic. And again, I think you and I speak about you know Julian Nagelsmann or, or Marco Rosa or Peter Bosch or mm. you know these young coaches, the philosophy coaches. I think if we could go and get a man like that to come in and say right, this is my three-year plan, my four-year plan. These are the players I'm going to buy around that. I think Roma's an environment where a, a coach like that could really, really, really grow. And particularly if you've got some some big financial backing to go in and get some of the best players in Europe, uh, that could be the, could be a way forward. I don't think Fonseca's the man. I think if he, if he doesn't get Champions League football top four this year, I think it could potentially spell the end. Um, but yeah, but it, yeah, not bad, but not not progressive. No, this is true. Um, so thinking broadly around Serie A, I mean, do you feel it's got more respected as the years have gone on? I suppose when I allude to this is a lot of the clubs have started to sort of spend a lot more, uh, certainly attracting the talents because I previously felt like there's almost this kind of gap with finances with Italian clubs for a number of years. And then suddenly you've seen the likes of Roma, for example, 
and in particular Juventus really go out and try and attract those players even if they have been like cast-offs from other European sides they've kind of got them into Serie A built them back up and then they've moved on for huge sums so I'm thinking of the likes of Pogba for example Salah um, in particular for Roma but there's been a number of them I mean even if I think about how many young talented players that Roma have brought through the years. I mean, it's, yeah, there's a list along as your arm, right? So, um, yeah, do you feel it's got more respect in, across Europe as well? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think you, when you look through the sort of the 2000s and then up, up to and including the, the interim Milan team of Jose Mourinho, mm. I think Serie A went through a dip where Juventus were the only show in town, um, really, and... Now, you know, Italian clubs are starting to really challenge. The Italian national team was a joke for quite a while. Mm. They're starting to kind of improve and, and show that, but I don't think until you've got, you know, an Italian finalist regular in the Champions League, will ever be, be back there. And I think Juventus's disappointment was that Ronaldo was supposed to be that player. Yeah. When you win, when you win seven um, Scudettos in a row, you don't sign Ronaldo to win your eighth. You sign Ronaldo to win the Champions League. And I think that was one of um, the problems over the last few years. Aaron Ramsey, Again, got him for free, but an enormous wage. I think you know we'll come on to it in a, in a while. I'm sure, but the sort of the, the transfer policy could be better. But to answer your question, I think Italian football is back on the rise. It's getting getting a bit more respect, and when you see sort of um, Atalanta doing well in Europe as well, it, it, there's a lot more fans that have been attracted to that style of play. Definitely, and I think you've seen the likes of Tonali sort of coming through Donnarama yeah. there's there's a number of really talented players even at Italian level that are really trying to almost peak up that interest in the Italian league now so there's certainly that talented bunch coming through and I feel like yeah Italian football seems to be on the up and certainly a lot more respect to it and from a national team point of view it seems to be in a better place as well so I think it'll be interesting to see how this Italian or number of players are going to come to fruition in the next few years because I can only see it being a positive thing and thinking about that let's think about Roma so who are the players we should be looking out for because there's been a few players that have been linked to kind of being Totti-esque um, I don't know if that's the right kind of term because Totti is unique in himself but yeah I mean what, what, what do you think of the up-and-coming players in the Roma ranks? You're absolutely right. Tortiesque is such a high bar to set yeah. for for any young girl, and there won't, there won't ever be another Torti because he, he came through Roma. He was a, a Roman boy, you know, played play for the youth team in his, his early teens, and came all the way through the ranks. The closest thing he got to that was De Rossi, really. Mm. Um, the kind of the hottest youngest talent is, is the gentleman I spoke about is um, Nicolo Zaniolo, you know, twenty one years old, attacking midfielder, box to box, six foot three. Um, absolutely fantastic he's had two horrendous knee injuries and we'll see how he comes back but I can quite easily see him um, he is a, a Real Madrid player he's that, that type of that type of player and he'll go on to do bigger and better things if Roma don't start challenging for titles he's the kind of player that you just won't keep on Torti you know by all accounts you know, should have not been a Roma player for that long it was just his loyalty for the club that was there because he came through the system there's always the you know the the, um, the stories about Real Madrid trying to sign him for a long, long time. You could never get him to sign. But, you know, Zaniolo is the one, um, he's the one to look out for. And I think he'll be uh, an Italian football legend eventually and, you know, a tip for the national team as well. Definitely. So thinking about Roma and Lazio, so that rivalry, how does that compare to Rangers and Celtic? It's about the closest thing you'll probably get. Um, <laughs> it is, it's... Um, 
I like obviously like football rivalries. Yeah, it's it's um it's well documented as in probably, you know, the ultras over there are, are a lot more famous and they get a lot more into it and the ultras over there sort of there's a, a very bloodline between football fandom and, and criminal activity as well. Um <laughs> and then they take it a bit more seriously. So yeah, it's it's a it's a huge derby. It's one of, you know, along with the old firm, probably one of the top five derbies in world football. Um I'd love love to go over and see a game. Um, I don't think I'll take my other half. I think that's probably one for the boys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get scared off of football, but it's yeah, it's, it's an absolutely it's another vicious rivalry. Uh, you know. Yeah, definitely. yeah. And does it feel weird that you have an ex Rangers player that used to play for Lazio and the likes of Paul Gascoigne, or do you accept that as part of his past? Ah, I'll accept anything Paul does in his past. <laughs> Paul Paul Gascoigne was a, a one of a kind and. Yeah, we'll just want to play and oh, go back to the Angels. It just shows you the kind we'll of money. That mark that down as a blurry it. year, yeah. Yeah, it was a yeah, bad year of his career. But um, yeah, he didn't have a great time at, at Lazio. And, you know, his agent said, if you, if you go to the Angels, you'll fall in love with football again. And by all accounts, you know, he, he speaks very fondly of the club and his time there, I think. You know, some of the stories about having a drink at half-time and getting scoring goals. And yeah, just, just what a player. And, you know, you'll, you'll never, ever get Scottish clubs again signing players of that level it just yeah. won't happen look at the 90s Rangers going out and signing Paul Gascoigne Terry Butcher you know Chris Woods and Brian Loudrup and you know Rangers Celtic will never be able to go into Europe and, and pull players like that ever again so no. yeah you know what, what a player for us Paul was yeah definitely and I've, I've it almost feels harsh to criticise Paul Gascoigne because actually in that period of his time he had just recovered from a bad injury at Spurs went to obviously Rome and he didn't do too badly, but he just also got a really bad injury down there. And that really like marked the end of his career at Serie A. And um, I know still do, they speak of Paul Gascoigne quite fondly because of his cheeky charm, I suppose, maybe more so than his footballing skills that he was able to kind of show off. But I mean, he's kind of seen as a legend for Lazio fans, isn't he? Yeah, and I think Italian football fans love a bad boy. I mean, look at you know Maradona, Di Canio. Uh, Matarazzi, they they love these guys. They just absolutely love them, and I think Paul Gascoigne fits into that cheeky, chappy, um, bit of a bad boy image. And yeah, they, they absolutely love it over there. Like Gattuso's another one. I mean, they absolutely love him um, for what he, what he did as well. I think um, those kind of characters, you know, win win hearts fans. They really do. Wins fans hearts. Mm. So thinking about Roma, who's the kind of standout for Roma down the years for you in your head? I mean, I. I think there's probably going to be a really hard choice, but I think there's also kind of an easy choice. I don't know if that's the right thing to say, but yeah, what 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 do you think is the earmark in terms of this is the best player that Roma have ever had? Uh, it's got you, Francesco Totti. Only mm. one answer to that question. Um, the best they ever have, or probably ever will have. Um, he holds a special place. They had to call him the last emperor for Christ's sake. I mean, just yeah. came through it. One club man. Um, I think I think one of his quotes was he can't he, he would he'd rather see his wife cheating on him than the Roma <laughs> fan seeing him in another shot another club shot. I mean just that kind of leave under these under no circumstances. Real Madrid by all accounts offered him an absolute fortune, um, refused to go, and you know played well into his, his late thirties. And there won't be another never never be another Totti. Mm. And that's that's the thing. I think we've kind of said it in this kind of area of the pod that actually he's pretty much Roma. He is Roma, Mr. Roma, yeah. and there's no one else that's going to compare unless someone overtakes him in the years to come. And that might be once Totty passes away, right? So we could yeah. be talking centuries away, but <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see on that one. 
Um, yeah. So you also spoke about the times you've been to the matches at Serie A, how they compared in comparison to what you've experienced in the past. So the one last year was my, was my first one, uh, admittedly. Um, yeah, fan, fantastic. Although the, the stadium wasn't wasn't full as, we, as we've discussed. Mm. Um, yeah, fantastic atmosphere. I think AC Milan what around five thousand, and then the Curva Sud, which is you know the, to the right hand side of the dugout, is it was almost more interesting than the match. Adam, to be honest, just yeah, watching it was just imagine. non-stop, non-stop noise, um, flags, flares, you know, you name it. Just a, an absolutely phenomenal sight. Um, didn't stop singing and yeah it was just absolutely fantastic a great atmosphere um, I'd love to go and watch some more Serie A football when you know when air travel starts back up and the environment permits uh, but yeah I would recommend anyone to go and try and watch some, some Serie A football yeah definitely worth the travel definitely and I think it's one of those experiences I'd like to tick off on my bucket list that's for sure because I think yeah if anything trying to experience football elsewhere rather than watching it on TV, is a completely different experience. Completely different oh, experience. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the only thing that will probably wind me up is the distance between the pitch and yourself in some of those yeah. stadiums. But I don't know. I think I'll get over it by the fact you're kind of watching it in a historic like place, like, say, the Stadio Olimpico or something like that. So Yeah, it's, um, when, you, when you see players in, in real life up close and... You don't really appreciate the sort of athleticism until you see them. I was really, really lucky. Um, I got to go down and watch Wigan versus Man United in two thousand and eight. Um, when they were winning, it was the last day of the season. They had to win at Wigan, and to, to watch to see when you watch Ronaldo on the television, you go, "Yeah, he's a, he's a, a good player and he's fast." And when you see him up close and, and actually in person, it, it blows your mind. It really does. You just don't really understand or appreciate what these guys can do until you see it up close. So yeah, you know. Watching football on television is fantastic, but there's, there's no substitute for for, for for seeing them up close and doing what they do. Yeah, definitely. And thinking about that sort of subject around players, um, one of the things that I've kind of thought of right now on the spot is how British players seem to be kind of getting more accustomed to playing abroad. And in, in particular, they seem to be kind of comfortable within Serie A. But I know the demands of Serie A are completely different to anywhere else. So um, what do you think it is about Serie A that draws the British players into them? I mean, in the last few years, you've had Ashley Cole and then you've had, obviously, more recently, Chris Smalling turn out for Roma. Um, but, yeah, what, what do you think makes them more comfortable coming into Serie A than, say, other leagues? Is there anything in particular that you think... Um, I'm not sure it's, it's Serie A particular. The Bundesliga has seen a bit of an influx of of English players as well. I mean, Jaden Sancho's gone over there. Jude Bellingham's over there. I think there was a young kid, um, John Joe Kenny, the young right back, yes, was, at, correct, was, at, yeah. um, was at Schalke last year. Yeah. I think a lot of these young players now have got the opportunity to go on loan and progress their careers and spend a year in Italy. Whereas, you know, five, ten years ago, it was like you go on loan to a, a championship club or a first, a, you know, League One club. But, if you can go, if you can go and loan to Germany or, or Italy and play your trade against these players, then why why would you not do that? Why would you not do that? I think there's definitely a, a change in the tide of, as an example, um, Hearts had a young left back, Aaron Hickey, seventeen years old, signed for Bologna two mm-hmm. weeks ago, and and is playing. And he'll get to play against Ronaldo and Dybala yeah. and Lukaku this year. Um, so I think there's definitely a recognition of these players going abroad now, and you know, Jaden Sancho was probably the first big big one to. Yeah. So that was achievable, and I think these people seen the success of him and Jude Bellingham. I can only imagine will do the same over at Dortmund. 
Um, there's definitely a, a change of wave, and I think it's I think it's great, and I think it will definitely help English football in terms of the national teams go back to that. If you can, if you've got players playing all over Europe, different styles of football, and playing against some of the, the best clubs and players in Europe, that can only help your national team when they all come back together. Definitely. And on your last point, yeah, Hickey was kind of um, talked about on James Richardson's podcast uh, more recently, and he actually turned out quite well. He did a really good performance by all accounts. Yeah, I believe the Bologna Twitter account, the Canadman was going mad about him. And apparently had a really, really solid first game and he played, he's played in cup finals over here. He's always played well against Rangers. He's a, a really solid, a really solid young left back. <clears throat> Just unfortunate that he's, he's behind Andy Robertson in the, the, the queue for the Scottish national team. But, yeah. you know, hopefully we can get something out of him. But yeah, a great young talent and, you know, hopefully it'll be good for, for them. And I can quite easily see him playing at a higher level after that as well. Definitely. And I think one of the other things, if I bring up around the subjects of youth players, is I've started to notice a lot of Serie A teams tap into the Eastern European market. Um, more recently, I suppose, more to my heart is the Polish league. Um, so a lot of the Polish youngsters are starting to get snapped up by Serie A clubs. Uh, you're seeing that go as far down as, say, Serie B, um, but more prominently in Serie A, where they are starting to take a chance on Polish youngsters. Um, but they're kind of what they're doing is I don't know if you can reflect on this, but what they tend to do is buy these youngsters off the back of a good season, um, get them into the squad, train them up for approximately a year, maybe potentially loan them out to a sister club, and then bring them into the full team. I mean, there is some notable differences. So I'm thinking of the likes of Piontek, for example, that had an amazing yep. season, um, but that's very rare. And I think you're starting to see a lot more of those Eastern European players. And I'm not, I suppose I'm more interested in the Polish team, but I can see a lot of Czech players, a lot of Ukrainians coming into it. So do you feel that's influencing how the youth development is taking place in Italy and particularly maybe Roma? I think it's it's definitely a market Roma can go into. And I think a lot of clubs are looking at, you know, look at the rise of some of the Eastern European national teams that are performing really well, in particular, you know, look at Croatia and what they've been able to mm. achieve recently. Um, I think, again, it's value for money. I mean, if yeah. you go into the Spanish market or the French market or the German market, those youngsters cost money, but they're getting youngsters, uh, you know, at equal levels of competency. You can get them for for, for a lot less money. And then yeah. if, whether or not they, they come into the first team or whether or not, as an example, say a Roma sign a young player for, you know, £2 million, bring them in, they've got Roma on their CV, and if they sell them to Brescia or Udinese for six, seven million more pounds after that, then, you know, so if they don't make it yeah. into the first team, it's the revenue stream, and it's, a, it's definitely a market that Rangers have dipped into recently, sort of Eastern European market, because it's more value for money. Uh, absolutely. Definitely. And uh, Again, go back to national teams, it can only help the national teams. You look at, um, you know, some of the players that are playing abroad, I mean, look, look at Modric and what he did for Croatia when he went back, and, you know, having having your, your youth players going and trying their trade abroad, can only support the national teams. Definitely. So I think when we move move on to the next point, I think we just want to reflect about Roma. So what has been your favourite moment of supporting Roma just during the course of that time? What's been the standout moment for yourself? Uh, I think in my memory, probably the quarterfinal to Champions League 17-18. Um, Roma get beat 4-1 in the new Camp in the first leg. Brought Barcelona back to the, the Olympico. No one gave him a chance. Ended up winning 3-0, went through and away goals. And 
you know, Jekyll scored the first, De Rossi penalty, and then Manalas of all people with, with a header at the end. And again, going back to Martin Tyler, he's been involved in quite a few of my <laughs> memories uh, with the commentary of Roma have risen from the ruins. And it's just that, that you know, and that was that was the the Barcelona team. And you know, looking at Messi, they the, you know thinking what what the hell's happened here? And you know, for Roma at the time, we're, we're not playing well, not. Um, you know, anywhere near the kind of the, the Scudetto, but for them to turn over Barcelona three 0 in the, the Olympico was, was something special. And you know, fingers crossed we'll have more nights like that going forward when we normally get back into the Champions League. And that's it for part one. In part two, we'll be covering Craig's topic, which you're in for, Belter. So join me in part two. But for now, adios. If you'd like to be part of the Hopeless Wonder podcast. Feel free to email me at thehopelesswanderpodcast at gmail.com or message me via the Facebook page and Twitter pages.